raised up, oh mountain, be made low. Yes, Lord.
Good morning, church. The Bible says in Psalm 118 and 24 that this is the day that the Lord hath made. Let us rejoice and be glad. Amen. So we want you to continue in your worship this morning through your giving of your tithes and offerings. So the tithing envelopes are in the seat backs in front of you and the boxes are as you exit the sanctuary. And you can also give online and um, through the church app if you have that so let us do our declaration today and let's say it like we declare it amen when somebody declares war they declare it right so let's declare it lord today by faith we declare that we are walking in the manifestation season as your faithful remnant we will house your very presence we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, and he has delivered us from all of our troubles and fears. We are no longer victims, but we are victors in Christ. We will not be deceived by the lies of the enemy, but we will give health, healing, and wholeness to the hopeless and those in despair. We will live under your anointing and see the revealed purpose of Christ in each of our lives. And we declare, your everlasting word on earth as it is in heaven so let us pray heavenly father god lord we ask that you would bless this offering this morning father god lord give us sense enough god to be generous with what you've given us and faithful enough to give back what it already belongs to you in the first place lord we thank you this morning because you're able god and we pray that you would bless those who have and those who have not. In Jesus' name, amen.
521 tells us as our declaration said that he has made us the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus do you realize that as believers that you all and I am the body of Christ now your body is attached to your head is that correct when you get up off your seat you don't leave your head there do you it's attached we are the body of Christ he is our head and we are attached we are seated with him in heavenly places even this morning we have a perspective that's not of this world we have the mind of Christ this morning and I thank God and pastor's gonna preach about it and I'm gonna read his text and it's through the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit and the finished work of Jesus Christ can you say amen if you have your Bibles turn with me to 2nd Chronicles 7 14 we're all probably familiar with it it says if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then i will hear from heaven and i will forgive their sin and will heal their land it's a promise turn to acts 2 1 to 8 and when the day of pentecost was fully come they were all in one accord in one place just like we are here today and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled all the house where they were sitting and there appeared unto them cloved tongues as a fire and it sat upon each of them and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad and the multitude came together and were confounded, because that every man heard them speak in his own language, and they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Would you pray with me? Precious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this glorious, marvelous, wonderful day. 
as Cassie quoted, that you have made. You alone, you literally made this day. And we thank you, God, that we can be part of it. We ask you, Lord, this morning to be in every part of this service and anoint our pastor as never before in the name of Jesus Christ to preach the word, to preach the gospel of the good news like he does to us every week. And we thank you, God. We thank you for a man of God to lead us in the way that he does. We thank you for all the godly men in this church that you've raised up, Lord, to lead this congregation. We bless your holy name. Amen. First of all, before I get into the message, I want to say happy Father's Day to every father here. You're one of the most important people on the face of the planet. And that without fathers, you would see chaos within our homes and nation. And we want to just applaud. Would you give all the fathers one more time a hand clap of appreciation? Amen. You know, for the last 30 some years, I guess very few times have I not preached on Father's on Father's Day, but we're kind of in a vein right now and we're kind of flowing in the Holy Spirit and there's a spirit of revival upon us and we don't want to do anything in the world. We don't want to let a holiday stop what the Holy Spirit is saying. And the Lord gave me this message about three weeks ago and I'd put it together and finished polishing it up this week. And, and I know without a shot of a doubt that the Lord wants me to speak this on this Father's Day. And let me say what a great attendance there is on Father's Day. We have a lot of our young people sometimes travel out, but it's good to see everybody here. We're thankful that you're here. But we're gonna speak the word of the Lord. It's a word in season. It's a rhema word. It's something that the Lord has birthed in me and given me great instruction about. So we want you to be blessed of the Lord as we Get into the word of the Lord. This morning I want to talk to you today about reaching the masses. We talk all the time about the last day outpouring, the end time revival, and the last day harvest. But in reality, there's only two biblical ways that we see the masses or the harvest being brought in and harvested within Scripture. As a matter of fact, we need not to forget what Jesus said about the harvest in the book of John, chapter 4, verse 35. When he says, Say not there are four months and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, look on the fields, they're white, they're ready to harvest even as we speak, as he spoke. Isn't it odd that Jesus said that the harvest is ripe and it's ready to be harvested and yet it seems like that the church world in general, especially in this western atmosphere, that it has lost its ability to win souls. When you look at the different statistics of organizations and church organizations and denominations and you look at their growth pattern, it's very staggering in the United States. We have lost our ability to win people to Jesus Christ. We have lost our ability to win souls. There are churches uh, that have not won one soul in many years within the church. And as a whole, the biggest statistic is that only about three or four people are saved average in a lot of the churches in about a five-year period. That's unacceptable. How many knows that people are to be saved every single day by the efforts of the evangelism of the church? How many believe that? Every single day. God should give increase every day to the church. For years, the church world has overthought itself. We have worked our programs, we've done our events, we've pushed our agendas, we've made our changes. Well, if you'll change this, if you'll change that, if you'll do this, if you'll do that, that'll appeal to the crowd, if you'll be more relevant. And, and all the pressures on this thing called change are becoming more contemporary, even though I agree with some of that, yet we've done all of these things, and yet we still have, we make our share of excuses of why that the harvest has not been reaped, and yet we've tried everything that we know to try. However, the Bible gives 
gives us just only two basic principles to observe and to do in order to win souls. And it is what it is, and it is simple as outlined within Scripture. And if we'll obey and do what the Scripture lays out for us, we will have the success of the Scripture. How many believes that? How many believes we need to be stay word-oriented, word-based, word-instructed? Can I have an amen? The first principle is that we see the church catching on fire and then that fire drawing people. Now we know that when you get a fire going that people come out to watch the fire burn. We know of what a revival is. We've seen revivals in past where the church just get a blaze of fire and people just start flowing to it. People just start coming to it. And then we also see that your church in the book of Acts going out and sending out in evangelism. Jesus said, not only did he say, hey, don't say four months, then cometh harvest, but he also said, but pray ye that the Lord of the harvest will send labors into his field. There has to be a sending out, a going out of this local congregation with the word of the Lord in order to win souls. Jesus sent 12, then he sent 70, but he also sent 120 to the upper room for them to receive the fresh fire of the Holy Spirit. So we understand there is the fire aspect of growth, but there's the sending out aspect of growth. Us individually, we, you know, no doubt about it, we are sent, we are to be sent into the streets evangelizing our world. And on the day of Pentecost, we know that this group that was on fire for the Lord went out into their streets. We read it in Acts chapter two there. And when they got out there, people were amazed because they heard them speak in their own language. Peter gets up and preaches a sermon. And in one sermon, in one day, 3,000 souls were saved to the church under the power of evangelism. You and I are children of God, and that means to do anything below what we are created for, it will bore us to death. Our supernatural origin and the legacy of triumph that makes up the Christian faith demands that we do something great with our lives. I want you to understand, church, you are called to greatness, and if you live beneath that greatness, you'll be bored stiff in your life. There's so many churches that come in every single morning, and they just go through the acts of worship. They just go through the mechanics of their worship. They're bored stiff. It's the same old mundane stuff every single Sunday morning, every single Sunday night, and they don't even have Sunday nights in most places. But nevertheless, people as a whole in the church world are bored, and yet we're called to greatness. Can I have an amen? There is a spirit in the land today that insists that the individual life is of no consequence. Everywhere we turn, we are shown that our particular existence is not important and that we, you and I really cannot make a difference. I hear people all the time talking about the affairs of the world. They'll say, well, what can we do about it? We can't do nothing about it. That's the farthest thing from the truth. And I want to tell you, nothing can be more of a lie. I want you to understand without a shadow of a doubt that your life has purpose and that your life has the ability to change things where you're at. Can I have an amen? Is there somebody in this house that believes in the greatness of God through the power of the Holy Spirit, touching a man to make him a man of God to make a difference. While the church sits around waiting for something to happen, we forget that we're called, we're commissioned, we're anointed, we're empowered, and we're commanded, commanded to make a difference. You and I have spiritual dominion. Can I have an amen? Somehow we've reached a pinnacle point in the church, however, to where we have felt our lack of authority and we realize our lack of success in the things that we do. The church is becoming wise here in these last days. 
ways. So much of the time, we have come up short of our expectations and our projected goals, and we end up feeling void and empty, and we feel like failures. We go out and we try and we try and we try, and we come back hanging our heads. It's like when the disciples came back to Jesus and said, Lord, we went out in your name, and we tried to cast out the devils, but we couldn't. And they were all upset because their their mission efforts were of a failure. It felt like that they had come back and they had not fulfilled what he had told them to do. But this has caused, however, in these last days, everything we've done in the past that seems like have not reached and met the goals, there's just something there that we're missing in the church world in general, yet it has caused something to happen. It has caused an overwhelming sense of miserableness and boredom in the body of Christ, which in return, I think, has been good. I think this has caused a supernatural hunger to begin to be developed in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have pastored for 35 years. I have pastored this congregation for 37, 36 years. And I will tell you right now, we are on the threshold of one of the greatest moves of God that we have ever seen as a congregation. I here see more hunger right now from this body than I have seen in years. There is a sense of an overwhelming desire springing up in the heart of this church. We are tired of the mundane. We are tired of the boredom. We are tired of the same old, same old. And let me tell you, I think that this this thing has called, created a new stir and a rumbling going on in the body of Christ for the first time in you. I hear the stir of the mulberry trees. I don't know about you, but there's a stirring in our church. There's a moving in the palace of praise. There's hearts beginning to catch on fire. Our youth this week was at youth camp, and they said that our youth responded in the greatest time of response to the glory of God that they've ever had. Listen now, they were up here worshiping this morning. Oh, don't tell me that we're going down. Don't tell me that we're kind of, don't tell me that we don't have nothing to offer. Don't tell me that we're of no conscience. I'm here to tell you, we are a thorn in the devil's side. We are the church triumph. We are God's holy people. Hallelujah. Oh, stand to your feet and give him praise. Give him praise. Hallelujah. God help me preach this sermon. I believe that the church is beginning to respond with a new emphasis on faith and the ability to claim things from God and for God. I'm tired of not receiving. I don't know about you, but we're going to receive. I believe that there's a fresh, renewed sense of activism in the body of Christ that's fixing to lay hold and claim the rightful, their rightful positions in the Lord. It's time that you understand who you are. It's, under, it's time for you to understand whose you are. It's time to understand the authority and the power and the dominion that God has given to us as a church. I think the church is moving past the idea of catching a few fish and, and, and with this especially catch and release program, that's what's been going on in the church world for years. You get two or three saved, and, and, and they come through the front door, four or five will go out the back door. I want to tell you, I'm going to close the back door. No one's going to leave the house of God. And people are going to flood in the new the front door. Can I have an amen? It's time to believe in the masses. It's time to believe in abundance. It's time to believe in a national awakening for this country. I'm here to tell you, it's going on in Africa. It's going on in India. It's going on in all of the third, a lot of the third world countries. It's going on in Iran. Why can't it happen in the United States of America? 
Awakening is coming. I decree it. I declare it. I, I prophesy under the name of Jesus Christ. We will not be left out. Hallelujah. It's time to believe in increase. It's time to believe in 30, 60, and 100 fold. It's time to make higher claims of winning souls. They're ours. Claim them. Amen? It's time not only to believe in catching fish, but it's time to take over the whole lake. Amen? You remember Jesus sitting out on the seashore, had him a little fire going, and the boat pulls up. There's a bunch of weathered, torn, tired uh, fishermen and he says, children, do you have any meat? Oh, we've been fishing all night. We've toiled and we've rolled and we've put out nets and we pulled in nets and we throwed out nets and we pulled in nets, but we haven't caught anything. And Jesus said, well, just launch out of the day. But you don't understand. We professional fishermen, we've been doing this all. Just do as I command you to do. Just pull out a little bit from the lake. Launch out of the deep when they get out there. Throw your nets on the other side of the ship. And yet they again want to say, well, now look, we've been throwing this thing all night. We're tired. Well, we haven't caught anything. This is useless. I said, throw out that net. And then by obedience to the word of the Lord, they threw out the net and they started gathering it in and they had so many fish, the net began to break and the ship began to sink. Don't tell me that it's impossible to win souls. When God begins to get into the authoritative reign of word for the church and the people begin to obey that word and they begin to do what God says, the scripture's already laid out what we're to do and if we'll obey what the scripture says, we're in for the greatest harvest we've ever seen. Not only did Jesus do that once, he'd done that twice, and the other time, as they begin to bring in the ship, the nets, it began to break the nets and sink the ship. And there were two other little ships that were on the side. And he had them come along. And he even filled them up. I tell you, there's an abundance coming. Do you understand there's an abundance coming? I'm not happy with just six or 700 here on a Sunday with almost 1,100 members. I'm here to tell you, there's still about 40,000 in Butler County. And I don't know how many's in Stoddard County. I don't know how many he's in Wayne County. I don't know how he's in Ripley County. I don't know, but I'm here to tell you, I hear the rain coming. I sense abundance coming. I'm here to tell you, we will receive the 30, 60, 100 fold of the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Just give me one reason why we should expect this city. Why not can't we claim it for the Lord? Amen. Almost... 25 years ago, 25 years ago, I was at a council meeting, the meeting, I've told this story, I'm gonna keep putting in your minds. The meeting adjourned late, it was right at midnight, I remember the clock well. I said, man, I gotta get home. Everybody had finally left. I walked out of the back door on 9th of Cedar up on that high porch, and it was cold and crispy, winter night. I think it was January, it might have been December, it might have been February, but it was right in that point. And I get out there, and there's a snow coming down, and that snow covered all the, the rooftops of South Poplar Bluff that I could see. Four as I could see, all the leaves were off, the snow was on the roofs, and I, it just made every housetop pop. And the Lord said every one of those roofs represent a dwelling. Every light on that represents a people. And he said, behold and look, I'm gonna give you this city. I was a young boy, I was a young man, didn't even know what it meant. 
And when God spoke that to me, it was so overwhelming. I thought, God, how is it going to be brought to back? We've worn, worn, worn our share of those people. We've planted 500 of our members in the ground since I've been pastoring. We have, we have buried two or three churches, and yet we're standing here with 1,100 members presently today. We've worn our share of them, but we haven't won the city yet. <laughs> Are you understanding me? Some years later, five years later, I go to a conference in Cleveland, Tennessee, and when I go to that conference, I go into a classroom to hear a man teach, and he gets done teaching, and then he points at me and says, stand up, and when I stood up, he said, young man, I want you to know this is what the Spirit of the Lord shall say to you this day. He said, I, God seen you that day that you got, went out on the back balcony of your church on a snow, it was snowing, a light snow upon the ground and it covered the rooftops and you seen the rooftops and God spoke to you and said those rooftops represent a dwelling and he showed you the lights of the houses and the lights of the street lights and said everyone represent a people and that night God said to you that he's gonna give you the city. He just wanted me to come by and remind you of what he said, it shall come to pass. Don't tell me that we're not going to win our city. Why cannot we believe instead of cops arresting drug dealers that drug pushers get saved at the palace of praise and they begin to sell Jesus Christ to our, our need? Why not, why not believe that? Why cannot we believe a wave of the Spirit to spread over our church with a tidal wave of compassion and sin revival upon our hearts? that causes us to go out under the power and the anointing of God, turn our world and city upside down for the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember those of you who were in that Claypool revival, one of the greatest revivals this church has ever experienced on Ninth and Cedar, and how it filled every night. That place filled up to where we set chairs in the, in the hallways. We put chairs in the foyer. We put chairs outside. And for a solid a week, almost seven or eight days, we had a revival with him. It was so strong he couldn't stay. We had his brother-in-law come right after that. And it ended up being a two and a two and a half week revival. And people would stay there at 11, 12 o'clock at night and didn't even want to go home. And people were going out and sharing that revival. And they were getting their neighbors. They were getting their friends. What's happening? happened that we have lost that zeal? What's happened that we've lost that passion? That was one of the greatest revivals we had. It set us a flame of fire. People come out to watch us burn and yet it put us a flame of fire to where we went out and we brought people in under the anointing. Oh God, help us. The tragedy is that the secular world changers and movers and the shakers and the business of the business world, they have overwhelming success. And yet they do not have the magnificent gospel of the church and yet they pursue their dreams and their ambitions with total abandonment. They say, man, I gotta have more money, I gotta make a bigger business. And with passion and with abandonment, they abandon everything and their vision is set upon building that company. We have God's word, we have the access to the Holy Spirit. We have the most glorious purpose of any organized group on earth. Ours is eternal, theirs is temporal. Therefore, why cannot we take our spiritual resources and do something great for God's glory in our time, in our city, in our church? Amen? I do not believe that God has allowed us to build this big of a building on this strategic spot in the city of Poplar Bluff on this hill just for the purpose to us have a half to three-fourths field building. Amen? I don't even think he just wants it full. I think he wants it full and running over. Can I have an Amen? My cup runneth over. I believe that the volume and the size of this building speaks reveals God's plan for us as a people and we can't forget it. I believe that God did not allow us to construct a facility like this just for image sake only. 
But God has stretched our tent stakes out to make room for a habitation of the Holy Ghost. Are you ready for it? I said, are you ready for it? I believe that God has had us to build this building to facilitate people and for us to pastor an ongoing act of God that brings revival. I believe that we are to be a revival center, a place of movement, a place of life, a place of vitality. We are not to be lukewarm and mediocre and average, if you please. I'm sorry, call me prideful, call me arrogant, call me heady, call me high-minded, you call me anything you want. But I believe that God has called the palace of praise to greatness. Amen? I refuse to be average and meet the status quo where everything is mundane and predictable and everything can be sustained by itself. But we are to be on the cutting edge as a church. We're to be the catalyst, a leader, an influencer, an example for the kingdom that reaches beyond the chasm and does the things that's impossible. I'm telling you that miracles are fixing to start flowing all over this building. Hallelujah, we're called to bring about the impossibles. Come on, somebody. We are to have the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit working in and among us. We are to represent the kingdom, and if we do what, and, and if what we do can be sustained by itself, then it's not supernatural in origin. It's just a bunch of talent and charisma that when we come in here and do the same old thing and with, reach what we can reach as a people, I'm beyond that. I'm here to tell you we need the Holy Ghost. I'm here to tell you we need God's super intervention. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to show up. We need to be spirit-led. Can I have it? We need the power of God to give us signs and wonders and divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. I speak it. I proclaim it. Let it happen. Let it be. Let it be so. Amen. Hallelujah. Hang with me. I'm gonna preach long this morning. Ha. I sense that there's a new breed of disciples that is weary of demonstrating the muscle of the flesh in the church. And they're ready to take on a new culture of the spirit. And they are ready to produce things that is beyond the, the human element to perform. They're ready to start operating in the supernatural. They're ready to quit doing the same old things and roaming around the same old path that they've been roaming around for 40 solid years. Doing the same thing, having the same thing, they're tired of it. There's a sense of uneasiness in the body of Christ. And there's an element of uh, desperation to do something about the way that things are, especially among young people. The young people rise up and say, I'm tired of it being like this. Amen? <laughs> what we do has to be spirit-led. It has to be done with wisdom. It has to be done in alignment, in order with the structure of the kingdom. Though we have this desire to do something about the way things are, we cannot become overzealous people and do a right thing in a wrong way with misdirected passion and we'll miss the move of God. God is a God of structure. He's a God of order. He has a plan. He has a strategy. He is not into things that cause chaos, confusion, strife, tension, and war. Jesus never led a mob to go out into war. He never done that. Can I have an Amen. Our individual life is capable of producing more and what most of us are producing and no doubt there's room for improvement in all of us. We know that. But look at the first words of our text in 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people. God's making a timeless statement here. This simply lets us know that when God judges the affairs of mankind, he looks to first to see what his people are doing. Judgment first starts at the house of the Lord. 
And before the angels entered into Sodom and Gomorrah to destroy it, they went to Abraham. And they first inquired of the man of God before they ever went about doing the assignment to destroy the city. The cities were not destroyed simply because of what was there. Everybody says, well, it was destroyed because of the perversion, of the sexual immorality, of the adultery, of the homosexuality. Well, that's part of it, but that was not the only reason that Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. But it was also destroyed because of what wasn't there, which was a core of God's people. Are you listening to me? In Genesis 18, verse 24 through 32, you see Abraham interceding for God to spare the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah where his nephew Lot was at. He was concerned about Lot. And Abraham's intercession in verse 24, he starts out and says, God, if I can find 50 righteous there, will you spare that city? God says, yeah, I'll spare it. Then as he account was made, it seemed that possibly that he was gonna come up short of the 50. He then asked in verse 28, will you save it if I can find 45 righteous? God then in all of his long suffering says, yeah, I'll save it if you can find 45 righteous. As he searched, continued, Abraham comes back and he asks God in verse 29, well, how about if I can find 40 righteous? Would you save it? And God comes back in his ultimate compassion for them and says, yeah, Abraham, I will not destroy it if you can find 40. Abraham comes back and uh, about uh, again and says, well, Lord, how about if I only find 30? And he's went from 50 to 45 to 40. Now he's down to 35 and, uh, or 30. And God in his great display of grace says, yeah, if you can find 30, I'll spare it. Then Abraham said, Lord, I know you're getting tired of me and I know I'm nothing. Please don't get angry with me, but what happens if I can find 20? Will you save it for 20 people's sake? And God says, yeah, for, I will for your sake, Abraham. Save it if you can find 20. Finally, he comes back at the last as well. What if I can find 10 righteous? Will you spare the city? And God just says, yeah, if there's 10 righteous people in that city, I'll spare it. Now, I want you to notice something. Can I tell you, don't underestimate what the presence of the righteous in the land can do. Are you listening? We, we fail to see this. One of the biggest weapons that we have is God's people being right. Right with God and right with each other. God's righteousness in the land and the righteousness of Jesus Christ in the church and in his people is the greatest warfare that we have. Just the influence of the righteous man alone makes a difference. It can spare a city. God looked down on Park Bluff and said, I'm gonna wipe them out. No, I can't, Kent, Sarah. Ah, I'm so fed up with that sin-infested city. I think I'll destroy, oh, I can't. The palace of praise is there. Come on, somebody. Don't tell me that the presence of a righteous man don't make a difference. Just us standing in the gap, holding our ground, keeping our convictions, not leaving our standards is a thorn in the side of the devil and his attempt to try to take over. Just us being at the right place at the right time without us saying a word or lifting a finger can bring a seal of protection over a whole city and over a whole region. It stops the work of Satan. It, it holds back the judgment of God and it invokes the blessings of God upon that place on the behalf of the intercessor and the remnant that is there. Oh, T.L. Lowry, one of our great men in our denomination, he's deceased now. He was one of our great leaders for years and years and years and years. I was never a great fan of his necessarily, but you cannot deny the amount of miracles that man had had. He had raised people from the dead and everything else in his ministry had happened. 
It's, it's, I mean, it's recorded. There's things. He just had miracles after miracles. He'd put up them old tents and they would flog to it and he'd just have miracles. It's like, it's kind of like what Oral Roberts had when he was alive in his younger years. This man was a man of faith and had all these different miracles. My friend Russell Dodson pastored in St. Louis in the inner city for over 20 years. And we had General Assembly there and they'd contacted him and said, Russell, T.L. Lowry's coming in and said, he's gonna look your facilities over. And said, we need you to be ready. And he came and looked it over to try to help do some mission work there. And when he got ready for lunch, they sent Russell on to hold a restaurant. Said, you, we'll, we'll be there in a little bit, just get the table. And Russell went down to Cracker Barrel and walked in and reserved a table and he was sitting there. And they got there and T.L. Lowry, they said, walked into the Cracker Barrel in St. Louis where no one knows him. And he just walked in, and when he did, he stood like this, and he looked around, and the whole restaurant just, boom, got dead quiet. Everybody dropped the forks. Everybody dropped their spoons, and they looked up at him and just stared at him. And Russell said it was evident that it was a, a definite manifestation of the presence of God. He said, it was unbelievable, Ken. He said, I've never seen nothing, anything like this in a restaurant. And they looked up at Tia, and they just was enamored by him. And they looked around, and he said, it's okay, brethren, go ahead and eat. And he went, sat down, and everybody started eating. I'm here to tell you, though we don't see that in a natural way very often, when we walk into a territory, the enemy stand up and take notice. Who is, they don't say who is this man. They knew who that, they know who that man is. When you go down in the drug-fested areas of town and when you go into those places where there's strongholds, let me tell you, every principality, every demon, every devil of hell knows who you are. And just your presence alone is a thorn in the enemy's side. When a righteous man shows up, they know who he is. Can I have an amen? <laughs> Haven't you had people just fall into conviction when you walk in a room? I have. I've heard people say, oh, there's the preacher. We've got to shut up and conviction all over them. Never said a word. Just my presence. The fate of the nation's rest is in the hand of the righteous. And God's decision to spare a nation is based upon finding purified people. And the righteousness is sealed with the Holy Ghost until the day of redemption. How many knows you're sealed with the Holy Ghost until the day of redemption? Which means Satan and the Antichrist cannot take control until the righteous is removed. We're sealed. When God turns to his people in blessing and favor, it has more of an impact than the evil that surrounds it. So let me tell you this, light is more powerful than darkness and the depravity of our nation should not be preoccupying our minds. Let's quit worrying about what everybody's doing wrong, what the government's doing wrong, what the world's doing wrong, and instead let's correct what we're doing wrong as a church. Let's look at ourselves. If there's no power in the land or in the church, the first place to examine is our own hearts and our own state of righteousness. If there's not signs and wonders, why? We gotta find out, amen? The very first stage of revival is to establish a core that is right with God. Every city needs a group that will set itself apart as a living sacrifice. They must be willing to be set apart as vessels of honor, sanctified meat for the master's use. They must be a pure people who are not rebels, who aren't out for personal glory or fame or popularity or attention. They are a group that isn't out to split churches or walking around with a superior countenance like, oh, the palace is better than everybody else. That ain't who we are. Can I have an amen? We must be a people that simply care, a humble people that simply wants an authentic revival in our land for God. We look back in church history and we see uneducated people, men and women, poor, with no resources, 
And yet they shake the world without internet, Facebook, Twitter, phones, computers, radio, TVs, cars, trucks, airplanes, etc. They were influencers, changers, and shakers, and movers. They had nothing, didn't even have a proper education, but yet they were movers for God. We may laugh at some of their standards. We may laugh at their dress codes, and we may laugh at their disciplines, but one thing you can't laugh about, they had power with God. Amen? And without holiness, no man should see the Lord. I'm preaching holiness here today, and I'll tell you why in a minute. If we want to see God move in the land, then we have to have purified hearts. That's why Matthew 5 and 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It is the pure in heart that's going to see the move of God. Amen? Holiness attracts God's presence, and it brings about God's anointing. That's why Psalms 24, 3 through 5, who shall ascend to the hill for the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands, pure heart, who's not lifted up his soul into vanity or sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and the righteousness from the God of his salvation. Holiness produces honor and purity produces power. And these people were honored by God and crowned with dominion power, spirit power, dunamis power. Though uneducated, they didn't have any resources, yet they turned the world upside down. We always talk about the palaces of remnant church. How many believe we're a remnant church? What does the word remnant mean? In the context of scripture, the word remnant means a small remaining quality of something, a small portion or part that has held true and loyal and made themselves subject to the authority of the cause of God. A small minority of people who remain faithful to God and so to be saved. Just as the 120 were a remnant that held true and brought forth Pentecost by going to the upper room in Tarion, even so, that is what the palace of praise is to be in the last day's showdown between good and evil before Jesus Christ come and gets his church in the region of Popper Bluff. God isn't looking for a part of us, a remnant within a remnant. He wants the whole church to be a remnant. Amen? God's looking for unity, 100% participation and a body that can come into agreement for the common goal of the kingdom in this region where God's will in heaven will be done on earth. He's wanting the people to believe this, what I'm preaching. If one could put 1,000 to fly and two can put 10,000, what in the world can 1,100 of us do? Oh my goodness, Jesus' voice thunders across the centuries from Matthew 18, 19. If any two of you shall agree as touching anything that they shall ask it shall be done to them of my Father which is in heaven. There is no prayer that can be prayed that will bring dread upon Lucifer like the prayer from a core group of people whose conviction is God is gonna give us this city. When you pray and you believe that, whoa, the enemy shakes and trembles. One of our Theme prayers are to be, Holy Spirit, fall on us. Holy Spirit, rain on us. Holy Spirit, sanctify us. Holy Spirit, cleanse us. Holy Spirit, empower us. Our cry are to be, fire of God, fall on me. 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 I say, fire of God, fall on me. Hallelujah. There is in our God an intense desire to find a revival core. He's looking for a revival core. And if we don't accept it, he'll move on. He'll write Ichabod over the church and move to another. Come on, somebody. Second Chronicles 16 and 9, King James Version says, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him, that's seeking him, that's searching for him. 
Second Chronicles 16:9 in the NIV says, The eyes of the Lord range throughout the her earth to strengthen those whose heart is fully committed to him. He's looking for that. God is in search for a core group. Amen. God seeks to find in us that spark that he can transform into life that can change the course of history. This kind of revival will cause the church to have another Pentecost. A suddenly, a shaking, an awakening, tongues of fire will dance upon our heads again. This will cause the church to burn with fire of God and people will be drawn to it by the groves. Are you ready for that? Amen. Only the true remnant that is persistent will survive the many battles that's ahead of us in this last day battle. There's no room for the lukewarm or the cold or the indifferent and the mediocre. They will not survive the pressures of these last days. We need to pray like Habakkuk prayed in Habakkuk 3 and 2. He said, Lord, I have heard of your mighty acts and I stand in all of them. Renew them in our day, in our time. Make known in wrath. Remember mercy. He said, in other words, I've heard of all your mighty acts. I've not seen them birth. But Lord, he said, I want you to renew them in my day, in our day. Let me see them. That's what we need to be praying. There's a great move of God going on in James River Assembly of God right now in Springfield, Missouri. People are being saved, healed, delivered, and set free. The pastor said that people get up out of the altars to come to the altar or out of their seats to come to the altar to get prayed for and they're healed on their way down there. He said he's never seen anything like it before in his life. He said it just started happening. He talked about all the prophecies that was over his church for the last 25 years words and the words of prophets that was given to him over those years. And some of those words he completely forgot about until the outpouring came. He thought, man, I forgot all about that prophet saying this and that prophet saying that. He said, that's how much it stuck in my heart. He said, they prophesied and I believed it for a season and then just dropped it off. But he said, now that it's happening, all those words of those prophets are coming back to me. The prophecies that he posted almost was identical to nature to those that have been spoken over us. My jaws dropped when I seen it. The time frames, the presentation of them are all similar to what God has spoken to us from all kinds of different people from around the world. And prior to this outpouring of the Holy Spirit and prior to the demonstration of these miracles, things begin to show evidence that it was there. And this pastor at James River met with a minister that, he's, that was very prominent in the area of revival. And this minister spoke very frank with him. The pastor at the assembly asked, what is it? take to have a sustained move of God and how do you pastor it and keep it going? The man's response was, it's very expensive. Pastor Assembly asked him, well, what does that mean? And he said, it'll cost everything that you have. This is the definition of the remnant. How bad do you want it? How much are you willing to give toward it? I begin to think of the ram and aligning herself up with God for perpetual revival. This is where it's going to get good. I thought to myself, what does a perpetual revival look like? What does it sound like? How shall it appear? What's its origin going to be? How will it come into existence? Where will it come from? How will it rise? What is its point of contact? And yet God answers every one of those questions within our two texts. 2 Chronicles 7 14, he tells us we've got to be a people of prayer. He tells us we've got to be a humble people. Amen? We've got to be a people that seeks his face. We've got to be a people that will, that will forgive people's sins. And then in Acts 2, we see what's another quest. We've got to be willing to go out and we've got to be spirit-led by the Holy Spirit. We know that the church must catch on fire 
and then out of that fire, go out like the day of Pentecost. We have to fulfill the Great Commission. But if we go out, we cannot go out with misdirected passion and be overzealous. We have to have wisdom. Over the years, I've been encouraging this body to go out, to get active, share your faith, engage yourself in the lost world. How many know I've been preaching that? Today, I want to give you a blueprint of how we are to go out and how we are to share our faith as believers. First of all, we have two major opposites working in the world that is contrary one to the other. We have the kingdom of God on one hand and we have the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of the world on another hand. We have the authorities of those kingdoms in operation as well. We have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, the host of angels that's operating in the spiritual kingdom which is called the kingdom of God. We also have Satan, also known the God of this world, the prince and the power of the air that is working in that worldly kingdom known as the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of this age. And on, the, on one side, you have God's representatives known as the church. It's the spirit-led children of God. How many knows those that are led by the spirit, they are the children of God. Those that are led by the spirit. And these are the people that God is using to literally go out and be his force on earth. On the other side, you have Satan's representatives, which is demons, devils, principalities, and also those that is known as the children of the world. They're called sinners in Scripture. They're called disobedient children in Scripture. And we know that they're fleshly driven. So we have the church on one side and we have the worldly kingdom on the other side. Now picture this. Over here on my right is going to be representing the kingdom of God. It's going to be representing the church. It's going to be representing the saints. It's going to be representing the children of God. On this side, on the left, we're going to say this side's the world. It's going to represent the principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, spiritual wickedness, and hyper. It's going to represent the sinners, okay? I want you to understand that. So we have these two forces living on earth at the same time, and there is war between the two. So how does the church reach out? How do we over here on the right reach out to this fallen sinful world that is flesh-driven and carnal in their thinking. And we are spirit-led with spiritual thinking. How do we do it? First of all, we have to learn our audience. We have to understand that the, the, we have to understand the people that we're trying to win. We have to recognize that the world is not the church. Nor can we accept, expect, or treat it like the church by trying to make it respond and understand like the church. Did you hear me? I'm over here with a spiritual mind. They're over there with a carnal mind. I cannot take what I know and try to make them, cram it down them throat to, for them to understand the principles of the church. Now y'all are looking at me like, well, what do we do then? Well, let me tell you what we do. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11 says, For what man, for what a man, for what man knoweth, let me get it out. For what man knoweth the things of a man set the spirit of man that is within him? Even so, what, even so the things of God knoweth no man but the, by the spirit of God. In other words, the only thing he knows is what his flesh teaches him. And the only way that you can know God is by the spirit of God over here. A matter of fact, Paul said that the carnal mind is at enmity or at war with God. It's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. 
In other words, these people cannot submit themselves to the law of God that this church represents. It can't. They don't understand it. That's why verse 14 says, the natural man receiving not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolish to him, neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. For you to come under the principles of the teachings of Scripture and the understanding of how the church functions, you have to have a transformation that opens up your spiritual mind to where you can have eyes to see, ears to hear, to where you can understand the principles of God. So if I take these principles that I know and go over here and try to win these people, but what I know, I am going to do nothing but start a war. Can I have an amen? What is an epistle? An epistle is a letter written to the church by the great apostles in scripture, right? What is the purpose of an epistle? To give instruction, correction, doctrine, reproof, teaching, understanding, to bring saints to maturity. They are there for edification. They're there for exhortation, right? Isn't that what the epistles are written for? Hello, anybody out there? What is the gospel? The gospel is known as the first four books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The gospel is all about the life, death, and the resurrection, and the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. The gospel is all about his life example and his teachings. The gospel is known as the good news. It's known mostly as the what? Gospel of peace. The gospel is the great hope for the world. The centerpiece of the gospel is Jesus Christ himself. Him only, nothing else. The church is not the centerpiece of the gospel. Jesus is the centerpiece of the gospel. I said Jesus. Our problem is we want to take the overwhelm, overwhelming overview of the Bible and the teachings of the epistles and we try to want to use that knowledge that we've learned to try to win these people to the Lord. And when we do this, though the message that we penetrate to them is true, yet we use the word as a club that offends and bruises instead of convicts and heals. It does not build bridges, it builds walls. Therefore, it becomes a word that provokes instead of draws. It creates war and tension instead of faith and peace. I've seen parents do this with their children where they provoke their children to anger by the, some of their standards. It's so crazy where a parent say, you're grounded for six months. That's nuts. It provokes a child to anger. Can I have it a man? Well, then they get resentful of the church. We're so prone to target the sinner's outward noticeable sin instead of dealing with the root of their sin. The root of the sin no matter what they're caught up in and what is visible is that they have universal sin. They were born into sin. For example, let's use the case of adultery, for example. Let's just say that you had a neighbor moving next door to you and they are not married. They're living in with one another, shack-ups, and you found out of it. They're living in adultery. The question would be, how would you as a neighbor go about winning them to the Lord? Would you get you a sign and go on the edge of the property where their house is here and yours is here and get right on the edge and put a sign 
that says, Exodus 20, 14, thou shalt not commit adultery. Is that what you would do to make a stand for God? Would you send them an email, a Twitter message, a Facebook post confronting their adultery? Is that the kind of evangelism you'd do? Do you think that you would be effective and win that person to the Lord? Less than 1% are won that way. Most of them are offended. That sign will become a wall between you and them and it will be a sign of offense. Are you listening? You may say, well, the message is true. Yes, the message is true. But the truth of the matter is they need the gospel, not the teaching of the law or from the letter of the epistle. Paul said the letter killeth, but it's the spirit that giveth life. What did Jesus say? How did he respond to adultery? Did you know we see on two different occasions that Jesus Christ came in contact with adultery cases in his ministry? We see the first one he encountered was the woman at the well in John chapter four. We see that the woman had five previous husbands. She was living with a sixth man who was not her husband. And even though Jesus did bring light to that, he never made that the centerpiece of his conversation. He never even made it a focal point. Come on. Jesus never browbeat her. He never told her that it was sin. He never mentioned to her about adultery. He never said you're going to hell because of it. He never done that. Jesus said to her, everything that you've ever experienced in life and wanted has never really gave you any satisfaction. He said, those five husbands that you had, they never really satisfied, but if you knew who it was that had asked you of drink, you would ask of me, and I would have given you living water. What did Jesus do? Jesus drawed her attention away from her sin and made himself the centerpiece of their conversation. You know how you're gonna win this people to Jesus Christ is to make Jesus... Uh, is make Jesus the centerpiece of your conversation. Amen? Folks, if anyone's gonna get saved, it will not be for them just forsaken or denouncing a certain sin. Lying will send you to hell as much as murder, stealing will just as much as porn, bitterness will just as much as adultery. Come on. Due to her seeing Jesus is what caused her to get saved and run away and say, come and see a man that told me everything that I ever done. If someone's gonna get saved, it's because they come to trust in Jesus Christ as their savior and not just forsake a certain sin. She could have forsook her adultery and still been lost. Amen? Jesus came into contact with another case of adultery in John 8. In this chapter, we see that the Pharisees bring him a woman that was taken in the very act of adultery. Isn't it odd the woman's brought, but the man's excluded from it? That always ticked me off. Amen? Women, you ought to be applauding me right now. I'm taking your side on this. Why is it that if a woman, come on. Why is it if a woman commits adultery, she's trashy? If a woman commits adultery, she's a loose woman. If a woman commits adultery, she's easy. If a man does it, he's cool. If a man does it, he's a, a womanizer. He's a great guy. We're so double standard, ain't we, in our thinking. In this chapter, we see that the Pharisees bring him a woman that she's caught in this very act of adultery. And they say, Master, this woman's taking adultery in the very act. We caught her. It's not something that we heard about. We've seen it with our own eyes. Now, Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What do you say about it? Here they were wanting to use the law, use the letter to discipline this sinner. 
They wanted to stone her because of the law of Moses. Jesus just stooped down and wrote in the sand with a finger as though he didn't even hear them. Didn't even, didn't even comment to them. So they get upset and they just continually keep badgering and asking. And finally he gets enough of it and he rises up and he says, he that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And then he stooped back down and started writing in the sand again. I don't know what he wrote in that stand, but I got a vivid imagination. He started saying, Joe, last night, where were you? And all of a sudden, <laughs> I don't think I wanna get involved in that. And the Bible says when they heard what Jesus said, they were convicted by their own conscience and they left one by one. Then Jesus looked at the woman and said, woman, where are those thine accusers? She said, I have none, Lord. And he said, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. Jesus did not give her a schooling or a scolding about adultery. He seen she was, he seen she was humiliated. He, she, he recognized that she recognized her sin. She didn't need to be beat up on, browbeated, confronted. She just needed forgiveness and tender love. He would have never brought focus to her sin publicly like that. How would it, what if I found out about your sin as a pastor and said, okay, Mike, stand up. I heard last night you cussed your wife out. That's what they've done to this woman, humiliate her. And sometimes in our evangelism approaches, we don't pay attention to what we're doing. Only those who were of the law, of the letter, would do such a thing. Pharisees, they're their poster board people who want to bring it out and expose it to everybody. If you're going to deal with someone, it's got to be relational. It's got to be private. It's got to be in a loving context. Can I have an Amen. You will never win someone to the Lord by publicly rebuking, correcting, or debating, or disgracing them. You're gonna make enemies of the cross. Now let's go to the church. Look at what Paul said about adultery in his epistle when he wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 through 13. I'm teaching this morning, watch. Put that up there. 1 Corinthians 5, starting with verse 1. And maybe it'll come up. It is reportedly commonly known that there's fornication among you, such fornication that it's not even named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. Now stop right there. There's adultery and fornication both. We have a young man that's not married who is sleeping with his stepmother who is married to his father. That's what's going on here. She's committing adultery. Verse two, and you are puffed up. You've not even rather mourned that he that had done this deed might be taken away from you. He said, you have not even thought about taking this man out of the church. He said, you've not even mourned over it. You've not even prayed over it. You're not even sorrowful about what's going on. Look at verse three. For I verily as absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that has done this thing. He says, I don't have to be with you to make a judgment. Though I'm away from you, I know exactly what needs to be done. He said, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together in my spirit with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He says, your glory is not good. Know you not that a little leaven leavens all up? Don't you understand that if you allow this to remain in the church without correcting it, that that little leaven is gonna live, it's gonna cause, a, 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 that leaven's gonna grow, it's gonna, it's gonna cause the whole lump to be leavened? In other words, it'll have influence on your children. It'll speak volume to those around you if you let that sin stay in the church and it not being dealt with. Then he says in verse seven, purge out therefore the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are unleavened for Christ, our Passover is sacrificed for us. Look at verse eight. 
Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old, old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Look at verse nine. I wrote unto you an epistle not to company with fornicators. What Paul say? I've wrote in the epistle for you not to be accompanying them, that you're not to be spending company and time with these people, yet not altogether with fornicators of the world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters, for them must you needs to go out of the world. But now I've written unto you not to keep company if any man that is a brother be a fornicator. Notice what he says in those two verses. He says, when I tell you not to keep company with fornicators, I'm not talking about the fornicators and the drunkenness and the extortioners and the idolaters of the world or unless you'd have to go out of the world. He said, I'm talking about those that say that they are brethren and they're doing these things. I'm talking to those that's in the church claiming to be Christians and they're out drinking every Friday night and they're partying and they're sleeping around. He said, those people don't even eat with them. Don't even accompany them. Don't patronize them on Facebook. He said, but I'm not talking about the drunkards of the world. I'm not talking about the extortioners of the world. I'm talking about the brethren that's in the church. The epistle is written to the brethren. For what I do, for what have I to do to judge them that are without? Let me just put it mainly. He says, I don't judge the people that are out of the church. I don't judge the people in the world, but I judge them that are in the church. But them that are without, he says, God's going to judge them. The sinners, God's going to judge them. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. In other words, what I'm trying to tell you is we cannot take the principles that we learn through the epistles and try to go out here and use them as evangelism tools and try to make this church, uh, world understand the church. It needs to be understanding Jesus first. Amen. Get them, you're, the centerpiece of your conversation needs to be Jesus. Jesus, his crucifixion. And you know, instead of looking at somebody, if old Gary's a drunk, I don't need to go up and start badgering him about his drinking. I don't need to be sitting across the bar with a big sign when he comes out of the door saying, all drunkards are going to hell. You know what I need to do? I need to get a hold of him and in a loving context relationship, I need to share with him, hey man, we're all sinners. I was a sinner. We were born into sin. I don't need to reveal any certain sin to him. But I want to tell you, Jesus came to be our perpetuation for our sin. He came to take our sin away. Hello? Now, Gary's a sinner, and I'm trying to win him to the Lord, but we got a problem. Brother Aki over here is a brother, but he's a drunk. So how am I going to deal with him, buddy? I'm going to be rough on him because he's been transformed. He's been saved. He knows right from wrong. He's no longer a sinner. He's a transgressor, and to whom much is given, much is required. woo -hoo. I'm gonna deal with him differently than the way I deal with that man. I'm gonna hold the scripture up in his face and I'm gonna make him accountable to the scripture. I'm gonna tell him all drunkards are gonna go to hell. Don't you understand that?
Are you understanding what I'm trying to get here? Woo! When I get up and I preach on Sunday mornings, I preach to a congregation. You are my pulpit. You are those that represent the kingdom of God. And when I preach hard and when I come down and I, as I'm doing is giving you the written word of the epistles to try to mature you. The scripture tells us in the book of Hebrews, leaving, laying aside those simple doctrines of the scripture of baptisms and of repentance and going on further to where you can become matured. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm maturing this body. I'm bringing it under accountability. I'm teaching it. I'm training it. I'm instructing. I'm reproving it. I'm correcting it. Amen. There's the meat of the word, and there's the milk of the word, and the milk of the word is not for those that are young. Or the meat of the word is not for those that are young. It's for the, it's for the, the meat is for those that are of a full age. Amen. There's an old drunk in my hometown, and I loved him dearly. I want to tell you what evangelism's like. He'd go down to the bars, and he'd get drunk. Everybody'd come up to the store. Old Bill Todd's laying out in the parking lot of the bar, and they'd laugh, and it just hurt my heart. I wasn't even a Christian through part of this, and it just hurt my heart. They made fun of him and laughed at him and called him a drunk. I fished with him and I loved him like a father. He was in his 70s and I'm a young teenage boy. I get in my car. I go down there in that parking lot. I open up Bill. I try to wake him up. And you know how dead weight is, Bill. You can't hardly lift it. I felt like I was a pretty strong guy. Finally, I'd get somebody, hey man, could you help me get Bill in the car? Why are you fooling with that old drunk for, Kent? He ain't no good. Well, the difference is I didn't see him through the eyes that they saw him. When God looks out here at the sinner, he don't see him through the same eyes as most. He sees their potential. And we'd get him in my car, and I'd take him, and then I'd put him under my shoulder. I'd carry him, take him into his house. I'd take him to the bathtub, it urinated all over itself and sometimes his bowels had moved. I'd clean him up, change his clothes, brush his hair, cry over him, put him to bed. I don't know how many times I'd done that. When I became a Christian, I said, I want to win that man to Jesus. You know what my approach to evangelism was? When I'd go find him, I'd take him back home. But I wouldn't wait till he was drunk sometimes to see him. I'd go by and see him. I'd walk in, I'd say, hi, Bill, how you doing? Won't you come over to mom and dad's for supper tonight? He would come. Mom and dad fixed dinner, and then I'd share the gospel with him. I'd tell him about Jesus. It was just sweet Jesus. Don't you know God loves you, Bill? And you know what? Eventually we did get to get in the epistles because he would ask questions then. You really think drunkenness will send me to hell? Well, let me show you what the scripture says, Bill. Now it's no longer offenses. He's given me an open door. 
I worked with him for about a year and a half after I got saved. And one day he showed up, him and his wife, to the Dudley Church of God. And he walked down that aisle and he gave his life to the Lord. That's evangelism. That's evangelism. It's hard work. I would have never, never got him by just doing it a cheap way, holding up a sign or sending him a Twitter or sending him a message on Facebook, making a statement. There's enough of those statements about the people of the world on there. They need Jesus. They need Jesus. John the Baptist went and preached about the coming Messiah, about the hope that he was going to come and bring forth light to them and how he would come and save them and deliver them from their sins. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. Come, Jesus is coming. And the poor and the needy and the halt and the lame flocked to him by the thousands. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees tried to come out and mess it up. And you know what they wanted to do? They wanted to add the law to what John was doing. And then John said to them, oh, generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? <laughs> he spoke rough to them. But notice that was never in his language or in his action toward the sinner. It was always towards the righteous. The way we treat the church and the way we treat the sinners gotta be totally opposite. And we've got to be able to take the gospel of Jesus Christ and present it with love to a lost and dying world. And then when they get transformed, we bring them under the teachings of the church and the disciplines of the church. And then we teach them the way that they are to live. You can't change the way someone lives until they're saved. Would you stand with me this morning, please? I didn't mean to preach so long, and I have so much more to preach, but I want to tell you, folks, this is heavy on my heart. Heavy, heavy, heavy. How did Jesus win the multitude? What was Jesus' approach to the sinner? What did he do? Did he go out and confront them and browbeat them and tell them they're going to hell and reveal their sin public to everybody and make notice to their, no, no, no. You know what the Bible says in Acts 10 and 38? How that Jesus of Nazareth was anointed of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit who went around doing good and healing all those oppressed of the devil for God. He brought healing to them. He'd just love them, heal them, pray for them. You know, he healed people before he ever forgave them. Come on, he ate with them. And what did the church do? Set back. Oh, he's eating with publicans and sinners. He hung around with some drunk people. You know how I know? Because they accused him of being a wine-bibber. How are you going to win somebody if you don't spend a little time with them? Love them. Coach them. Pour into them the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. What is the answer to a lost and dying world? Come on, say it. Say it again. Scream it at me. Folks, this whole centerpiece of the gospel is Jesus and him crucified. Paul said, I don't want to know anything among you except Jesus and him crucified. He said, when I go into a town, I do whatever that town does. If they don't eat meat, I don't eat meat because I don't want to do anything that might offend them. He said, if they don't dress a certain way, I'm not going to dress that way because I don't want to offend them. I do, I become all things to all people that I might win them. 
I'm not going to be controversial. I'm not going to be fighting. I'm not going to be debating with them. I'm not going to try to tell them it's all right to dress this way. Uh, if they don't want to dress that way, I'm not going to dress that way. I'm, if, if I go to Rome, I'm going to do as the Romans do. I'm not going to be offensive. And what was Paul's approach to King Agrippa? And King Agrippa said, boy, Paul, you almost persuaded me to be a Christian. <laughs> I'm asking you as a body, rise up, go out, get involved, but do it in a right way. Do it in love and present the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're a, wanting to win souls and you believe this is the time that the harvest is fixing to hit, I just want you to make a commitment. Come up here just for a minute. We're not, we're not going to be up here but five minutes, I promise you. a double standard in the scripture where you treat some people one way and another people another way in the sense of the context of humanity in general. But there is a way that you treat someone differently because of the level of who and what they are. You treat a transgressor totally different than you treat a sinner. The sinner knows. I mean the transgressor knows the ways of God and rebels and the rebellions have got to be confronted by a harsh word, a corrective word. It's like when Nathan the prophet went into David and said, hey man, and he tells him the parable and David said, whoever who that man is, man, he needs to be dealt with, he needs to be killed. And oh, Nathan said, you're the man. You're the one that stole someone's sheep. You're the one that committed adultery with Bathsheba and had a man killed. You're the man. Rebuked him right to his face. I've been rebuked at, to my face as a believer. I needed the rebuke from my pastor. But the sinner, they don't need your rebukes. They don't need your harshness. They don't need your doctrine. They don't need your standard of righteousness. They don't need your convictions. They need Jesus. They simply need Jesus. And Jesus needs the center be the centerpiece of our evangelism. The palace of praise therefore exists to go out into the world and I send you out to where you'll become a, a, a living epistle with your life, but that you will be the you you will bring the centerpiece to the conversation to the center, and that centerpiece will be Jesus. Preach Jesus. Tell them about Jesus. Refer them to the Gospels. Refer them to the life of Jesus. Show His goodness. Show His love. Show His forgiveness. Show His mercy. Show His healing. Show His power. And if anything, pray for them and hug them. Embrace them. Cry with them. Help them. Do whatever it takes, even if it takes a drunk. And you have to take a washcloth and clean him up. Bathe him. Carry him to his couch. Put him in the bed. Even if it means that. Do it, and do it for Christ's sake, in Jesus' name. Father, right now I pray over this congregation, and I pray that, Lord, that we use much wisdom in everything that we do as a body, and that we as a people of God, that we become wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. That everything we do, that we will not miss this opportunity to win this harvest. 
that God, that we will do everything we can, that we'll be unified, that we will be together, that we'll be an army to be reckoned with, that we'll be a remnant that tells the world about the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And Lord, that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, the hope of the world. Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we give you the praise in Jesus' name. If you're committed to that, give God praise. Shake one another's hands. Hug one another's neck in Jesus' name. So set a fire down in my soul that I can't contain, that I can't control. I want more of you, God. I want more of you. I can't contain, I can't control 